Maguire, Wallace to his left, and he's on his way. 10, 9, 5, 3, cut down! Wonderful try! We have a mole, Jim. Digs like a demented mole there. He just bursts through the defence. Just watch this. Spillane gathers beautifully. In go the Irish forwards. This is Lennon. Bursting into the 22. Back to Bradley. Back to Kiernan. The drop of goal is over. Michael Kiernan has done it. Good evening and welcome to the Molecast. Good evening. Good evening. After the highs of Stade de France and the uh, trip around beautiful France, it's time for some 115 kickoffs on a Sunday in the Rodney Parade. This is the inevitable lull that comes after the highs of the World Cup, even though obviously it was a disappointing end for us. It was a big high in general for rugby as a game. And then after that four-year cycle ends, you've got to go back to the trudging around provincial towns in uh, in Europe and uh, play the Osprey. No, <laughs> and and play the... What the fuck is this team called? <laughs> Dragons. And, and play the Dragons. I thought, and I had said before, I thought Leinster would uh, struggle to get off the mark this season. Waiting for Nina Barr to join and obviously having contributed so many players to the national team. How do you think they're settling in? Well, it's funny that they, they did play the Dragons because we were coming back. We are either coming back on the train, the Orior, from Stade de France, having been beaten by New Zealand, or we're walking around Paris the following day trying to trying to, trying to get some feeling into the numbness um, before going to watch South Africa play France, going, oh, well, there it is, back to training in the rain and playing against the Dragons in Rodney Parade. And sure enough, the first matchup for Ireland's returning World Cup was uh, was Dragons. So there was a quote from from Dan Sheehan the week after saying, it was, it's was it been five months since I was in a Leinster jersey. By the third week, brackets, after the World Cup, I was gagging to get back in and see the lads get back going. Now, he didn't say he was gagging to play in Rodney Parade against the Dragons, but um, he, he was <laughs> Lunchtime <happy>. on Sunday. <laughs> Lunchtime on Sunday. But he was he was gagging to be back. So, um, I thought it was a good match for like, a Sunday afternoon in, in Rodney Parade. It was certainly better than the 7-6 match, which is my previous memory. <laughs> um, Ryan Barrett's 30 knock-ons in five minutes. <laughs> and uh, uh, like for for none more than, than Sheen himself, um, his 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 setup for a try was, was excellent. His setup for a try was something like an all-black would do. Uh, really from... You know, from getting involved in the first bit of the play and then while the next phase was on, getting out to the far wing and then holding his, like just holding straight, keeping himself the opportunity of an inside pass and then having the skills to execute the inside pass, having done the difficult bit of making the run and you go, holy shit, like that is, that's good. Yeah, he was brilliant. Um, his ball carrying was really good. I and like I, I thought others were good. I mean, often at this stage of the season, it's it's interesting to see which young players uh, lay down their mark. I'm I'm still not sold on on Boyle, but you know, look, he's, oh, he's they... played a number of games. But I I think Jay, I thought James Cohan when he played under twenties was a super player, and uh, I thought he played really well again. 
um, at the weekend, and I actually thought Ryan Baird played well. I know yeah. you didn't really think he played well. I, I thought he did play. Pretty I, well. I didn't give uh, away very many penalties at all. I made a number of tackles sort of later on in the yeah. game, which is like, yeah, I just thought it was pretty impressive for me. I have very, very high expectations of Ryan Baird. I have to uh, say, so sometimes I can be overly harsh on him. Um, with regards to Boyle, I'd say curious. I would be curious as to what standard you would judge him at. You know, do I like? Do you think? You know, it's, it's like when when people in uh, they're asked to give journalists are asked to give marks out of ten. The marks out of ten articles, which, as you know, I really dislike because the, my query is always, well, what do you mean ten out of ten? Do you mean you're marking against the best, the best player, the best the best performance by the best player in his position in that year, or a mark out of you know? versus his his own best performance or a mark out of 10 like what does that mean it's almost like it's just made to fill up one side of a page <laughs> yeah but it is you know but the uh that's my query because i think boyle while uh i think he's been good but again i would hold him to a high standard and like i think he's been i think he's been good and it's been a it's been a very useful time for him and he's taken real advantage of it like Leinster have three t- or loose heads injured at the moment Keane Healy Michael Milne Ed Byrne and another one on international or or in Andrew Porter so they're missing <laughs> their first four choice loose heads and aside from the opener against Glasgow you know with the 21 year old Boyle and the 20 year, 20 year old Paddy McCarthy they've made quite light weather of it yeah they, they have I I saw Boyle play for Michaels against Blackrock and it was a match I was going to watch Michaels more so, I think, for Ringo, mm-hmm. um, which is the reason I was at it. And Boyle scored two tries and he, you know, he took a short line, he hit a hard charge, he got over at school's level. He was he was obviously big news. Um, I think he was under 17 that year. Um, and I just think he still... It, I think he still plays the same way. I think he takes a lot of short charges. Um, I think his tackling could be a lot better. I think he could be more involved in breakdowns. I think a lot of his game is is based on taking, you know, sort of hard charges and you know, like there's there's less and less juice. It's good that somebody shows up looking for the ball because you definitely need different people to do that. But um, now I'm just more a fan of. Of of what's his name? Paddy uh, McCarthy. McCarthy. Yeah, I was going to say Paddy Patterson. I knew it wasn't his name, but uh, yeah, Paddy McCarthy. But like, I, I, you know, I couldn't I couldn't point to anything brilliant that Paddy McCarthy has done that Boyder hasn't done. But mm-hmm. I guess to say like they're twenty one and twenty year old uh, loose head props, so it's just a matter of time. But look, it, it's not really to to drill down and to criticize him to a guy like you know making his first four appearances. Mm-hmm. Um. It, it it's really that I thought Cohan played well, and I suppose you know we we get to sort of discuss the the different players around the provinces who who are playing in those maybe a bit later, or I don't know if you sort of want to no, segue to it now. Well, I, I, I would say... have thought the McCann sort of Ulster match was was sort of a a, a better a better place to talk about that. So, um. Yeah, kind of, kind of business as usual for Leinster. Um, looking forward to Nian Aber getting back in. Like as as a Leinster fan, 
I was a bit concerned after the Glasgow match because I thought it was the worst Leinster performance probably since losing to Zebra about three years ago. Or is it longer that Leinster lost to Zebra? Maybe six years ago. I can't remember. No, we lost to Benetton. We lose to ben- yeah, we lost to Benetton. We had Jesus, that. We had that. We almost, we almost lost to Zebra at one stage. We anyway, debacle against the uh, the Bulls at the end of last season. When we got ah, yeah, yeah, down there. But anyway, I think I, I thought it was very sloppy against Glasgow. Um, and you're sort of going, ooh, like Leinster could make life a bit awkward for themselves and drop points, but they haven't. Like they're what second or third on on this, like on points. Yeah, they don't have 15 points, same as the Bulls. Um, and. You know, Rob McBride was saying that Nian Aber's been dipping in and out of games, using certain sort of language. But like he's he's landed in Dublin this week. Oh, is so, he? Yeah, yeah. He'll be he'll be getting down to business on the pitch around the campus with his two World Cups, walking around the place. Yeah, pretty. You know, bit of a change of pace. And so, well, looking around oh, before we move off from Leinster, I also think worth mentioning. Big Joe McCarthy. Oh yeah, because his entire Leinster career has been uh, almost um, uh, the angle that people have been taking to talk about it is he a bolter to the Irish squad, and he was, and he obviously made an impact at the World Cup. But now he's going to be like, this guy's going to throw his weight around all season and become a regular, big, huge Irish second row, <laughs> throwing his weight around in the Rodney Parades and the Parky Scarlets and all the other venues that Leinster will be uh, going around to on Sunday lunchtimes. <laughs> um, so just to, I, to even to consider him rather as part of the regular squad rather than the, the usual, uh, like, you know, a last year's bolter, I think it's kind of interesting. Yeah, I agree because he missed, he had a really good start to his career not last season, but in the second part of the season before, he played number of games. He was even on the, uh, he I think he was on the bench for all three of the Heineken Cup knockouts. And then he missed a lot of last season. Um, and I think he was, he he played against Munster in the league semi-final. But that might have been his first game back or his second game back after Jesus not being available for selection. Um so last season sort of didn't really happen for him. You know, he ended up, he played against Australia. It's my memory. He got capped against Australia, or was it against Fiji in November? Then he missed the entire Six Nations. Um, and you had, you know, in the last game against England, you had Ryan Baird starting in the second round, Kieran Treadwell on the bench. And then he got into the World Cup squad and performed extremely well against Romania and, you know, played in a World Cup quarterfinal off the bench for 20 minutes or something. So he has had this funny career in which he's he's played very few games for Leinster. And uh, not that he's a super experienced Irish international, but a lot of his exposure has come at test level. Um the, the query I suppose is like is is he gonna be a guy like James Ryan, who is as much an Irish player as a Leinster player, or will he get, you know, sort of a full season with Leinster and play eighteen or nineteen games? Which I'd like to see. I think it'd be good for him. Certainly, be good for Leinster. Now, around the other provinces, who are I, the? Who I, sorry, I, just before we move on, to Joe McCarthy. Somebody, there's a guy called Ray Ridge who writes in the forty-two comment section, 
and he's a shit stirrer. Like, you know, he's always kind of goading people about how Ireland get knocked out in quarterfinals and what could you expect. But um, he, he, he made a comment that sort of struck me that McCarthy gave away four penalties in the first half. And I was like, shit, I didn't notice. Maybe he did. Because um, normally if guys get up to four, I sort of go, fuck, <laughs> Jesus Christ, stop doing it, will you? You know, but at the same stage, uh, McCarthy did give away a few penalties. And... It's kind of hard to fault him. It reminded me of an interview with a, an English football manager a number of years ago where he talked about joining a new club who were in, you know, threat of relegation, sort of, you know, past halfway point of the season. And he just looked at them and he went, neither of his centre-backs have been booked at all. And he was like, for fuck's sake, <laughs> no wonder we're in a relegation dogfight. Like, you're meant to be stopping them score. You don't have to stay within the rules to do it. Like, pick up a few yellows. So it's kind of good that if you've got a second row, he is putting his weight around and he's 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 kind of testing out the boundaries, particularly if you're in a situation where you're going to win the match anyway. Like, it's not necessarily something you want to do in the like the last few minutes of a Heineken Cup final. But um, I, I thought the amount of... Con- testable sort of action that Leinster showed as a whole in the breakdown was uh, a real part of what the Safas called the Irish style. And I guess, again, something that we pick up a bit more in the Derby match when we talk about it. Well, let's talk about it right now. I was going to say, as we move away from uh, Leinster, who else is sticking their hand up from that, uh, that big bash at, at Open Ravenhill? Which I have to say, I was fully expecting Munster to win that. I thought, uh, I don't know, I just thought they were on the up and I thought Ulster looked a little sad. Uh, but it turned out they just needed a fiery derby to get their motor started. I thought Munster would win it as well. And I guess that the, like, the, there was, so first, where do I start? I start with, I'll start with the Irish style. I thought that, again, the breakdown was really well contested by both teams. Now, I'm not a fan of Frank Murphy at all, and I'm certainly not a fan of him when he refs Munster matches. And But I I, could, I think it was Leamy was commented on. I was a bit confused in what was going on at the breakdown. And you go, well, Dennis, it wasn't just you. It's probably the same for Ulster. That, like, But anyway, look, who knows? Uh, Ulster were the home team. They started going forward a bit more in the second half. They probably got a bit more to whistle. Um, but all the way through the match, like there was a lot of competition at the breakdown. And I'll go with that idea of the Irish style. So this is a, this is a phrase that I heard used in the Emerging Ireland Tour last year when oh, yeah. you had to watch the matches um, on, on the web. Yeah, on the, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. On the web broadcast, I'd like, you know... <laughs> Uh, Thursday coming from Africa, you know, sort of buffering away and freezing. And it was all Safa commentary, you know. So they kind of had their own pronunciation of Thomas Ahern. And, but they talked about the Irish style. And it really struck me for a number of reasons in, in no particular order that like the Safas loved their rugby. And yeah. their commentators like, are, are really good. Are really into it. Their commentators are really good. Like they're, and they're like a few guys having discussions. There's like this one guy who's knowledgeable having a discussion with another guy who's knowledgeable with another guy who's knowledgeable doing a bit of color on the touchline or something like that. But like, there's they're not padding it out, no. and that famously, uh, Colin Mead said that when you tour South Africa, 
like it's it's a great place to play. Like the weather's great, the pitches are great, the crowds are great. And th- this is back in the sixties and seventies. And he goes like, you, you play your best rugby, and the Springboks are watching it all the time, and they're taking apart everything that you're doing. So all the good stuff that you do playing against their provinces, the Springboks are waiting for it and ready for it because they're so into it. Like it's such a big part of their of their psyche. It means so much to them, but they really talk about it and they analyze it. So the fact that Ireland was on their radar was like a, a mark of respect. And then the fact that they'd identified the Irish style as opposed to the way the Kiwis played, the way the Safas played. And like it's it's disciplined, it's possession oriented, and it's like a lot of contest at the breakdown. And it's it, it was on display in Munster, Ulster, in the same way that Leinster were trying to charge the Dragons off Rooks, in the same way that, like, you know, Josh Vanderfleer, who's not a jackler at all, really counters a lot at Rooks. Um, and within that Irish style, I thought there was a lot of... It's, it just struck me the amount of young lads who were playing, and you sort of go, geez, like a few years ago, it would be that you'd see a good guy at under 20s and you'd have him marked and you'd be waiting for like when he's going to make the breakthrough like and, and kind of waiting for him to make the Irish team because like our, our game is predicated. Whereas now you're going, you know he's going to make his provincial team, but probably make his provincial team fairly soon. But like there's no guarantee he's going to make his Irish team and there's just so much competition. So McCann got man of the match. Gleeson came on and went straight to number eight. And they move Coombs onto the flank, and you're sort of going like, how long? Like, how long till Coombs ends up second row, or you know, does or does or blindside? And they threw to Gleeson twice at the front towards the end, rather than thrown to Thomas Ehan. Um, and I, I was kind of hoping that Postlethwaite was going to make a break. Um you know, put 30 or 40 meters together or, you know, go through a gap and commit two defenders. And like he had a very quiet game. And instead it was Stuart Moore's little chip through on the left-hand side out to Stockdale, which mm-hmm. was like the real mark of a of a, a midfield center. But even with that, you sort of go, well, shit, like this is Ul- Ulster need, like obviously Stuart Moore to play better. And maybe Postlethwaite is putting the pressure on Moore, but ultimately you'd hope that, Postlethwaite and Hume have a real proper rivalry for the Ulster jersey that will push one or one of them to be like a proper test quality centre. Because, you know, a lot of stuff was said about Hume last season. Two seasons, Two seasons Two ago. Seasons. But you kind of get the feeling with Ulster that there's a bit of a cosy club there because there's not enough pressure on their anointed stars. And it's been like that forever, really. Yeah, um, Tom Stewart was very good as well. I know that Rob Herring came on and, and won the last turnoff to win the game in his record-breaking appearance. But when Goals have had an issue with producing uh, forwards, like when I say an issue, they've had a massive problem with turning guys from under-20 internationals into uh, successful pro players from 1 to 8. It hasn't been an issue for, with them from... 9 to 15, but from one way it's been a huge issue, so it's good to see Dave McCann, who was a captain of a very good 20s team at number 8, playing so well. Uh, Tom Stewart, who's excellent. Uh, and then the other fella, Scott Wilson, who came on as sub tight head. The, um, the fella with the long hair coming out under his, his scrum cap. 
uh, Andrew Trimble made a good point after. Like he's obviously a, he's a he's a big fella. Um, he scrummaged well, but it was his ability to hold pass onto his on that went to his back hip. He held that well, made a break. Then when he was tackled, he, he fell forward, threw himself forward, and then laid the ball back long. And Trimble goes, oh, he's got a bit of football about him, which was spot on because those are their good habits. And it's good to see a player who's who's a tight head prop have good rugby playing habits. So that's part of the, the Irish style, as you say. Like, as as you have to be able to perform the fundamental functions of, of the tight five, but there's nothing, there's nothing stopping you from having good rugby habits, like falling forward in the tackle, throwing yourself forward in the tackle. You know, the sort of body ball has gone out a bit, but it's still a feature of the game. Setting the ball back correctly or looking for, you know, the, the sort of three chances of the offload, the immediate hit, when you're in the back and then when you're off the ground. Having those options open to you, like that's a rugby playing ability that players, like in the Irish game is now, uh, is geared towards and it's an important thing to see so that was a real positive um but they're not the only youngsters on the pitch like i was really uh, uh taken by the fact that there were so many monster youngsters in the pack especially with uh Ern, a dog bow gleason who came on hotnut like that's a lot of now there's some older Kendallin. fellas there Kendallin who started um in the wrong position, like he's not, not never going to be a six. So, uh, I'm just going to go on a bit here because when you said, Oh, Coombs could end up in the second row, they won't need Coombs in the second row. Yeah, I was thinking that, yeah. Um, so Coombs could replace Peter Mahoney on the blind side, and then with a dog bow, Ahern, Coombs, and Gleason, and probably Ollie Yeager coming in at tight head. Like, now you've got a big pack. Now you've got a big pack that you got haven't room. had We've for a got long room. time. Quinn playing seven, you've got a huge pack. Yeah, and then you have, you know, you have the options where do you, like you, what you can do with uh, Hodnett, Kendall and Quinn, you know, you can, you can maybe, you can maybe use Coombs at eight or use Gleason, whoever you want to play at eight. Like Gleason is so young still, still a teenager. But like that's a very, very impressive looking back five of the pack. Plus, Plus other players, like Evan O'Connell will turn out to be a good player. He's gone back into the under-20s this year with Gleason. So, like, Munster have had have more talent now in their pack than they've had for 20 years. And a lot of it is Munster players, and at the same way that McCann is an Ulster guy and playing well, and Scott Wilson's an Ulster guy, um, I think the ability to move players around the provinces, like some people would say it hasn't worked. It has worked. Um but it's it's harder to play your your best rugby away from home. But like it, it was, it's something that Nusafora set his mind to, and he he sort of had to break that resistance. Um, oh no, sort of. Like he he yeah. had to break that resistance just just to if if only to chase the number of NIQs out of the country or NIEs out of the country in order to give Ireland more players playing. Um, and then, you know, so in, in the same vein, Carruthers had got injured the previous week. Uh, Ruben Carruthers. Um, great, great player, potentially. Great but player, then you sorry. think, right, you could, you could have Carruthers and McCann um, as, your, as your flankers for Ulster, which is, it, 
it, it's just easier for, for Ravenhill to sort of adhere themselves to those guys playing. And then at halfback, you had um, you had Doak and Craig Casey. Craig Casey playing. So Craig Casey's been to a World Cup. He's he's played in the World Cup. Scored two tries in the game. Uh, scored two tries in that match. But he's like he's he's not under pressure, but he he must be aware of the threat from Doak to his long term Irish future. And again, it sort of goes back to like a few years ago where you'd have a scrum half who went to a World Cup at, what, 22? Or is he 23? Or is he, he turned... 24 and... Craig Casey? 20, yeah, he was 99. You know, he, he well, I, I think, again, like, he'd be the heir apparent, and you're going, well, Gibson Park and Murray are old, so Craig Casey's going to be there for the next eight years. And, like, he will be there for the next eight years, but, like, as one of a number of players. And certainly he'll be dueling with Doki, and they're very different scrum halves. But, again, like, there's, there's that competition. And I think this is something that that Birch raised and he, he he was talking about that idea of not quite depth, but also like what you have of past your first 15, like how many guys are capable of, of winning a, a match against England or France or South Africa or New Zealand in a, in a world cup knockout match. That is depth. And like depth means leaving good players on the bench. Yeah. And it, but I suppose again, like it's a conversation worth having. And you you have to sort of think to yourself that it's hard to know exactly what what makes that and what like what drives that, but competition has to be the being the biggest single element. Competition and confidence. Players players who like I was saying this about there's a couple of things I just want to say now looking at Ollie Yeager, there was a rumor that he was going to Leinster. Looks much more like he's going to Munster. If he is looking at Leinster, he's looking at uh, Tyg Furlong having just been on his third straight. Since they started picking a, a World Rugby Team of the Year three years ago, Tyg Furlong has been the tight head in every single one. So it's him and DuPont are in that per- particular position where they're the only three players who've been on the team three times in a row. Jaeger is looking at that and going... Even though Tyg didn't play that well in this World Cup, I'm not getting to play big games ahead of him. Plus, he's I think Tyg turned 31 yesterday or today or a couple of days ago, whereas Archer turns 36 in January or Feb. John Ryan turned 35. If Archer, sorry, if Jaeger ends up in Munster, which I think is likely to happen, you have him playing. He'll fancy himself to take the, the jersey off both of those players. You'll have him in Munster, Finney Bealham in Connacht, uh, Tom O'Toole and Ulster, Tyke Furlong. So you have four tight heads who will be competing for two spots for first choice tight heads. Uh, that's one element. So that level of competition, both in your own province and against other first choice players, is a, is a big item. And then the second item, which you mentioned in passing, there is um, competition and something which we can't rely on at all anymore as project players if you look at our backline we had three project players in the in the backline that started against New Zealand started up most of our big games this season uh, Gibson Park James Lowe and Bundiaki project player the project player is dead that's been a big part of like it, that has been a big part of Irish rugby's success uh, for 10 years close to 10 years um, so it is much more important now 
that the uh, that the provincial academies are producing players for their own teams. Like that sounds such a bland thing to say, but you there's like your your NIE guys are the only guys you're going to buy in anymore. You're not going to get NIQ guys who give them a three year contract. They'll qualify for Ireland in three years, like James Lowe or CJ or whoever. That's gone. That's absolutely gone. So we have to become more uh, self-reliant than we have been. And also, the IRFU should expect much more from the other provincial academies outside Leinster. Because the moving players around Ireland thing is not moving players around Ireland. Moving players from Leinster around Ireland. There's been tiny traffic otherwise. Traffic is absolutely irrelevant movement between other players you can you can pick out a few guys who've done it but jesus it's the body of it the huge body of it has been moving players out of leinster to other provinces um so what's my point my point is that it's i would say past time that um that you see these younger players from ulster younger fords from ulster and munster getting selection and playing against each other in big games. And and with that, you talked about Colhan earlier, talked about McCann, talked about Gleason, and then throw in Ryan Baird and throw in Ruin Quinn, and you go, there's a rake of guys who are like 23 and younger, all of whom are playing at the weekend, quite apart from like Keelan Doris, uh, quite apart from Josh Vanderfleer, who's got another few you know, another few years left on him. And you go, like, quite apart from whoever else is going to come up in the next tranche of guys, and you go, like, that's proper competition. Like, yeah. there's, there's serious ballers there. And like, you're, you're Deegan and Coombs, who can still, like, there's no reason why you shouldn't play your best rugby when you're 26 through 29 as a back row. Yeah. And Penny, you know, Will Connors, like, there's... There's a, yeah, there's there's a rake at Kendallin, Hodnett. Like that's that's a lot of talent in the back row. Ireland always has has tended always to have a good back row, but it's very encouraging. Yeah, you need to have too many players. Um because yeah. there'll always be injuries and there'll always be lads gone up to different squads or, or out of whatever time. Lads in and out of form. And in and out of form. So the it's not just like yeah, Munster needed three you know, homegrown back rows, it's good that they have six on the cards. Correct. You know, um, and yeah, I think um, I, 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 it, push, it well, pushes guys to go deep as well. Yeah. It's hard to cut across it because ultimately, like the fact that there are other good players by its own, like that isn't going to make you it isn't going to make any one of them a good player on its own like somebody from those or two guys or three guys have to decide that i am gonna make this i'm gonna i'm gonna do more i'm gonna do it more regularly and the thing the phrase that i remember or the the story that i remember was uh, when alan ryan came back from wasps where he'd been a strength and conditioning coach he was the strength and conditioning coach with craig white and they were European champions at the time, was he said that um, Dawson was there, Delalio was there, um, and that 
towards the end of the season, because I was saying, like, Jesus, you, you guys really, like, timed your run well. You know, like, you, you look like you knew you are going to be the fittest team at the end. I said, yeah, we, like, we did, and we planned for it. But he also said that Delalio would sit down in the playoff matches and say, well, look, you know, guys, I haven't had a particularly good season so far, but we're playing Leicester today, and I'm going to be the best player in the pitch. And then he'd go out, and he was the best player in the pitch. And like he said, Matt Dawson was the same. You know, he says like that he would address guys beforehand and say he was going to play really well in this match, that he was really up for it. And then he'd go out and do it. And it goes back to that confidence piece as well. But like you have to train so hard. You have to dedicate yourself so much to to get to that place where you know that you're better than everybody else. And then you become better. Like it's it's this sort of, but like you also have to train hard all the way through when you're doing it. But like once you're really good, you can play really, really well. And that's the other thing that I took from the the match on Friday night was Rob Herring's interview afterwards. And he was going, oh yeah, like it's it's disappointing. You know, we didn't win it. And you're sort of going, holy shit, like they really thought they were going to win it. Like, you know, they're, they're back playing domestic rugby now, but like they expected to win it. And you sort of go, like it was real. And then you go, like, all those guys are coming back into their provincial. They got knocked out of the quarterfinals again. But, like, they got knocked out in a different way, which I think anybody who's reasonable could have seen. But then you're going, like, they're all coming back, bar Sexton, bar Earls, into dressing rooms with that level of expectation. And, if like, if you can't see it, you can't be it. But, like, you're, you're there looking across. Like, Tom Stewart must be there looking across going, like, if I want to get a first-choice hooker spot, like, I've got to get past Herring. And Herring has gone, you've got to get past me. And Stuart's going to go, well, what am I going to do about it? And that's that's one of the things that makes the difference. So like, I've got to say, it's very encouraging for Irish rugby. I agree, 100%. What you were saying as well about the depth doesn't mean anything unless... It just it was, What exactly did you say? I thought it made sense at the time. It was like... Uh, it's it, yeah. It's it's not on its own. Like sort of so from a kind of like say you've got ten players who are competing with each other in the back row, that doesn't make necessarily any one of those players better. Like somebody has to make a decision of those one or two guys have to make a decision that they're going to train harder, they're going to train smarter, they're going to put themselves into a darker place before they recover, and. Like the example that I was thinking of was, was Josh Vanderfleer. Like looking at Vanderfleer when he's under 20, he wasn't even the best open side in his under 20 squad. Like Dan Levy was. And granted, Levy got injured. So like we'll never know. He he missed two World Cups at his absolute peak. But nonetheless, Josh Vanderfleer was World Player of the Year. But even like you could you could go through a lot of guys who are on that Irish, the recent Irish World Cup team when they were under 20s and You'd have about seven guys in the pack who you would have had ahead of uh, Josh Vanderfleer as being World Player of the Year candidates. Like, I would have had Andrew Porter and James Ryan. I certainly would have had Keelan Darris. Tyg. Would have had Tyg Furlong, would have had Ian Henderson. So, you know, like, they're all guys who are coming off the tip of the tongue. And yet, Josh Vanderfleer is the guy who's done it. Now, I think you can point towards the fact that Vanderfleer was always quick and. I was going to say like the word, the correct word is explosiveness, but I prefer explosivity. Um, that he had that explosivity and and that speed, which granted you can coach, but like you can't coach it to that sort of level. And maybe that's one of the criticisms or one of the places where Coombs is lacking, that they kind of feel that 
they really want guys who are explosive and a, a guy who's like Coombs and who's who's really strong and who's got a great try scoring try scoring knack like that isn't what the Irish team want. And I sort of heard that the only thing that would make me question is, well, why do they go for Keane Prendergast? Like he's he's not explosive, and they go for Prendergast ahead of Coombs. So I sort of have my doubts about that. But leaving that sort of sidebar aside, side 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 side. Um, it's it's kind of a matter of like who really goes for it yeah. again and again between and again and like again and like just doesn't relent between like, Quinn and Kendall and 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 Hodnett. Who are, you know, Hodnett was in the 2019. I think Kendallin was 2021, and Quinn is is 2023. And so, like, there's two years between each of them. And you're going, well, there's only one open side on the pitch. Which one of you is going to go out and be it? Like, and even thinking back to like Richie McCaw's chasing great movie, we would have talked about that a few times about just like how he doesn't seem to do anything special. He just does it all the time. But there's also a few like YouTube documentaries about the Franks brothers, and you go, Jesus Christ, these guys are so dull. Like, so dull. They just go and they do Olympic weights. <laughs> They're they very nine. <laughs> and they blend food and they have beards. And you go, like, this is just so monotonous and boring. And like, you know, the voices don't move. But they've two World Cup, what, three World Cup winners? Yeah. Now. Like, I mean, they've got multiple super rugby winners. And you go, well, like, who's laughing now? You know, it's the Franks boys are. And yeah. like, that's it's not all that it takes, but just sort of like that's what it takes of just again and again and again. Just and relentlessness, relentless. no self pity, absolute like so many max efforts. Whether it's you know whether it's your Olympic lifts, power lifts, training, doing the shit that props hate, running to get fit, getting better as a catch pass, uh, never. Pretending that you're never injured for the Franks brothers, like never. Um, like those guys were such. I remember seeing the documentary, the CrossFit documentary on them actually. Um, and like that was like, I was like, why did you choose these lads for fucking CrossFit? They're boring. Well, on the last, the last word on the subject of death, when Birch said that in that podcast, I was thinking, you know, he's talking about you know game changers coming off the bench, and I was going like, well, like. You know, like not that many teams have fucking world class back rows, like top of the top of the line coming off the bench. And I was just thinking, Dan Levy would have been in. You know, it would have been Dan Levy and Josh Van der Fleer as the you know first choice up. And like he's just one of the players robbed from us by injury, and what a pity that was. And you know, make I thought the comparisons between like people like Dion Fury who ended up winning a World Cup. Like, he, he, by fucking throwing shit throws, you know, for 79 minutes. Like, in spite of him. And then, like, I, I didn't like the fucking post-rationalization of, oh, we need players like him. We don't need 35-year-olds. Dion Fury has a fucking massive heart, in fairness. Yeah, no, I'm sure, he do, I'm sure he does. But it's not, that's, like, a team that wins three games by one point, that's, like... No, well, it's not like Dion Fury is not, like, they just won three games by a point. That's what happened. It's not like... We need 35-year-olds who suddenly fi- figure out they can cover at seven and two. No, it's like Dion Fury. Like I, I, I think that's like, he's such a success. Like he's an undersized everything in South African rugby. It's amazing. Like I still would say that their bench this time in this World Cup is significantly worse than their bench in their previous World Cup. 
significantly worse. The only position they're stronger in is uh, is uh, sub sub nine. You know, they were so strong in in all the other positions previously. Like Quagga Smith is is a good player. He's he's like, and he played really well in the World Cup off the bench. Uh, Furry played amazing well off. Like I've seen Furry play a lot of times. Like he's he's. Like he's a good, tidy bits and pieces rugby player, and he just played like so inspired in those games when he came on. But he's he's not like he's not a f- he's not a fucking superstar of the game. That Jerry's got yeah, but I, I, I think this is the bit that is it's the it goes back to the intangibles conversation we're yeah. having before, and it goes back to Razzie's just oh. rugby savant. Uh, as opposed to and people savant and people savant as opposed to Joe who who always struggled with selection that I would contend that I think Razzie looked at guys and went like he's got this incredible heart he has this incre- like I'll just call it heart I'll call it ticker like it's it's probably the most important thing when you're picking a team that you go has he ticker it, like it really is and you sort of go like catch pass and the rest of it that if if you've got like 15 guys with heart, you can make them good. <laughs> even if, like, even if they can't fucking catch the ball, you just kick the thing away and like, just tackle the shit out of it. Like ticker is the most important thing. And obviously to win a world cup, you need more than that. Like you need a different range of skills, but there is part of me that goes like, look, Eddie Jones took off that big Saracens lock. Yeah. After like twenty five minutes, and like it was kind of you're going, oh man, it's a comfortable watch, but and you're going like, well, you picked him, Eddie. Yeah. Um But again, it, you're sort of going, oh, like would would Razzie do the same? And then you saw Razzie taking off <laughs> Manny Lebok, Manny Lebok, like after thirty minutes, and then dropping him, and you sort of go, he sure would, he sure sure would, you, you know. So part of it is just like who who can. Who can do it for you on the big day? Like, who's got the big moments? Because, like, look, this podcast has long dead a Peter Omani, but other people who'd be less jaundiced or more biased towards him will go, they like Omani. He makes big plays. And you sort of, you have to, at some point, step back and go, well, we're wrong about that. Because he does make big plays, and he's been picked nearly 100 times. Well, 100 100 100 times, 100 games, you know? So, like, again, shows what we know. So, anyway, the... Uh, the ebb after the flow of the World Cup is a good time for uh, young Irish players to stake a claim to the next part of the the, Brilliant the, great, the great the great Irish rugby <laughs> narrative that, that's being forged here. Uh, but it is it is a brilliant time, yeah. and it's good to see it. Uh, it's good to see it panning out so quickly in front of us. Like Boyle was. Boyle and McCarthy are, you know, like standout age grade players, really big prospects. Loose head is is a is a weak position in Irish rugby. Like this Six Nations is too soon for both of them, but I would expect it only to be probably maybe two tournaments too soon for them. We've said African tour. Uh, which is going to be a tough tour uh, in the summer. If that was an easier tour, one of them would be on that. Yeah. Now, well, someone, one of them still might. Some of the fans not happy with that. 
Someone needs to stop him. Referee blows for half-time. The next big question is, can we replace the Newport Gwent Dragons with Portugal in this league? Fuck yes. Like I, you, that's because I was bitching and moaning and, and whining and complaining. Like I, I think the Dragons should have been wound up years ago. Uh, Newport isn't a big enough town to support a property. It's only... It's only 30 kilometers from Cardiff. Like, it's literally down the road. Uh, the Dragons have been a dreadful team for 20 years. They don't get many people through the gates. I think Newport has a, like, I know that Newport has a proud rugby history. Newport RFC. Just go back to being Newport RFC, in my opinion. Like, they are, they are a fucking rubbish team. Uh, they're not a good organization. I don't know if anybody from Newport listens to this. That's my opinion. Um, and every year, bottom bottom three in the league. Every year. Welsh rugby can't really afford them. Wales would be stronger if they had three teams with three better teams uh, and less of a wage bill. You'd still have like you'd still have the same wage bill as you have for the three teams. Like you just have better players in those three teams. Like to me, it's a no-brainer. Like I would, I would definitely be looking to bring in attractive holiday venues as as our you know other teams, Portugal, Spain. You know, let's go and play. Let's go and have trips to Lisbon or Porto, Madrid or Bilbao uh, instead of going to Newport. Like I'm, I'm, and those are entry routes for those whole countries to have stronger rugby infrastructures rather than rather than have a, a rump team in Wales which has been a money leech for you know 20 years like it's 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 genuinely it makes so much sense to me and I can't I'm sure you could make an argument for Newport but it's not going to convince many people if you're if you're in Newport you're automatically going to be convinced by it but if you're making a, a call for it, a small town in Wales, this market town, which has a pro rugby team, which is consistently last and saying it's really important that this is still here, you go, it's not. No one wants to go and play there, even though they win all the time. Uh, you don't get many people through the gates yourself. You're not a draw on television. You have financial troubles every year. To the point that they were taken over by the WRU about four years ago. Um, so yeah, just like if I was in, in Welsh rugby, I'd be just, I wouldn't be even doing that much consultation about it. I'd be prepared to just throw myself on onto Welsh, the fire swords, shit and arrows of Welsh rugby Twitter and going, I've made this decision, it's gone. There's three teams in Wales now. And you want an extra team in the, in London? Oh, yeah, I, I, I have this itch that uh, sometimes flares up that with London Irish going to the wall last year, the Premiership Limited or Premiership Rugby Limited is got 13 stakeholders. There are 13 clubs. Um, London Irish are one of those clubs. There's a scarcity to it. And just if, you, if you're Irish rugby and you're looking at the fact that we're producing so many players. Like, what are we going to do with the surplus players? You go, well, 
like owning an English team, then playing in the Premiership, then playing in London, in this enormous megalopolis where you can you can really like first of all you get exposure for the players that they're playing games then you've got a choice of right like i mean can we pick these guys for the national team even though they're playing outside of ireland or like or does it become a kind of like a royal antwerp where you just you send them over as that's your feeder team and you can you can change their contracts like you haven't like they all have one year contracts or they've got two year contracts with an option on one year that if they play well they're going to be brought back into one of the Irish teams something like that and it gives you the opportunity to do it with a partner or like with multiple partners to get like to get financing from outside so like the IRFU doesn't have to do it all themselves now the question is can you make it pay um in the Premiership rugby and like the, the big question is. Can you own your own ground? Yeah, so I was like going to say that's the biggest expensive thing. in the UK. So you've you've got to make a decision that is there real estate that we can buy where we own this pitch, and you know, can you do it with a soccer club or can you can you run the ground? I think you have to do it with a soccer club, and you sort of just have to figure out your scheduling that you're going to play your home games when you play your home games and like the soccer club are going to play their home games and that that's going to give you either rent or um or you know can you do a, a Jackie Lorenzetti and make it into a concert venue and like you know just have stuff on during the week and like have an artificial pitch and does have a have enough footfall going through there that the ground pays for itself um now there's rules in the Premiership about how many sort of non-England qualified players you can play, and those have changed since Brexit. So, like, you'd either you kind of have to get a dispensation, I think, from the RFU or the or, or the Premiership Rugby, whoever forces those rules. I think they're Premiership rules. Mm-hmm, they're Premiership rules. You see, I, I think about, this is. I bet how you do it and you sort of go there's too many complications to it really for it to to just be obvious if there's a British and Irish and other it is British and Irish and Italian and South African League which uh, during the World Cup uh, there was a number of newspaper articles saying that talks had had feeder out talks or some sort of preliminary talks had started on that Um, and it was very interesting the way that the British newspapers described it as a new a new British NRC just going it's the premiership which is fucked which is a sinking ship looking to join the URC like it's it's one one country's league looking to join the league of five other countries one or the other now it would, it would be rebranded it wouldn't just be the URC but if that happens there's potential otherwise for for uh, I don't think there's any potential for the IRFU to own a club in a premiership. There's probably the, the, there's probably too many hurdles to go past, but you can see how something like that would work. Now, go go another way. Go south and say, could like the IRFU stroke Portugal stroke a wealthy benefactor, a cartel of wealthy beef farmers. Um, the cartel of wealthy beef farmers. Could they finance a club in Portugal? Could like you know? So could could surplus Irish players go and play in Portugal and be in the URC and be in the URC? 
and take the dragon spot and play in that. And again, like, you know, so there's just, there's a few different angles to how you could look at things. Certainly, I think that a team in Lisbon is more attractive than a team in Newport. Jesus, yeah. Like, it's it's better for, it's better for the, it's better for Portuguese rugby. It's better for world rugby. Uh, it's better for the league. It's a more attractive place to go. It's probably better for Welsh rugby that, that, that you lose a team. But it also then concentrates the mind and goes, look, guys, you're not owed anything. You fucked us over for the World Cup. You've been given this opportunity. All you want to do is play in a league with the English, right? They don't want you. Face up to it. You've balls it up yourself. You've you've actually got steadily worse year on year on year. Um, and now you're going to lose one of your teams because Portugal's just more attractive. Yeah. And like again, it's that idea of competition that you just go. We just we can't continually subsidize subsidize you. you what were you, you saying to me earlier about? If your team is, if your league is a, is the game, the NFL or, did you remember you were saying something to me there? Earlier? I spent a bit of time. So I, I was listening to the podcast uh, and usually it sends me asleep because I listen to it sort of late at night or in the middle of the night. But I actually listened to it in the kitchen and I heard myself saying um, about not being able to look at what the NRL do. And then I thought, ah, it's bollocks. I must be able to look at what the NRL does. The NRL being the Aussie Rugby League. And they've got, there's a few things that they do. So the 16 teams, they've got a free-to-air deal with uh, Channel 9 that they've had for 30 years. And basically what that says is like they get they get a lot of money for that. But Channel 9 also know when it's on. So I think it's the Thursday night match is, and a Friday night match is always free-to-air. So you've got all these eyeballs are looking at your game because they know on a Thursday and a Friday, look at Monday Night Football. Yeah. Look at the show that it became, quite apart from the football match, which is often the worst one of the week, but it's just like there's nothing else to do on a Monday. People want to watch football on a Monday. And if you put good analysis and good commentary around it, you'll actually get more people. And they'll tune in to watch the bit after the match more so than they will watch the football. And like Sky, Sky cop this and put Carragher and Neville together and like made it made it a phenomenon yeah. in a way. Uh, except in Aussie Rugby League, on the free-to-wear, it's Thursday, Friday, and then Fox has a deal where they show every game at the weekend. And they're not on free-to-wear, they're, they're on Telstra. And they're and then I was reading about their digital rights, and I was there going, I don't really understand what digital rights are. And I found this thing from, I think it's Warren Origin is, is the name of the company. And they do these push notifications one and signal. one signal. And basically the summary is that the Aussie rugby, the NRL were doing the, themselves and they were spending their sort of their time and their efforts, like doing push notifications and they weren't really working. One signal have a much better push notification system because it's all that they do. Mm-hmm. So they team NRL teamed up with one signal, one signal to all the push notifications. So if you want to know what's going on with the Broncos or the Rabbitohs, you like you say subscribe yeah one signal will push all this stuff to you through their pipes because it's good and the nrl guys spend their time curating uh the digital footage so they basically take the match or interviews after the match and they put it in a way that you'd want to watch it so you sent us a link on the on the whatsapp today going actually the urc highlights of monster Ulster are really good yeah well i wasn't sure now if they were uh if there were Ulster's in-house ones or if they were the URC provided ones because it was on the Ulster Rugby channel 
Uh, I think do, it's the I, old Sarubi channel because the URC some, ones are three minutes long yeah. and your one are 14 minutes I have to long. do some further investigation because I'm very curious about, uh, you know, working adjacent to video editing and with video editors, who are the people who put together the clip straight after the match and why do they seem to care so little? Uh, with those, those three-minute highlights packages, it's because they're told to do, put the bits where they score in. Yeah. And this is a 14-minute highlight package and it's, I would say, modeled after the ones that the Kiwis used to put out, the All Blacks used to put out. I remember watching one of a test they played against Japan where Japan came relatively close to them on a tour in Japan. And it was this 15-minute package and it was like, really feel like, felt like I like felt like I could bluff my way through a conversation about that game because I saw all the important bits. But, mm-hmm. And this is basically just showed highlights of why did a team get a penalty? Most basic thing. What was the offense? And if they're going to score from inside the 22, how do they how do they get to the twenty two? Mm-hmm. Like, rather than just like here's a, a highlight, and it's like a series of players lining up to kick the ball <laughs> over the sticks. It, no, no, but it's just like Leinster piling in from one yard. <laughs> I showed the score and play, and it's like, well, that that doesn't teach me anything. So uh, you know, it's not an it's not a an exact science. It's not an easy thing to do. I'd imagine trying to capture the drama of the World Cup final in highlights would be fucking impossible because yeah. it was all about the lack of highlights that, you know, it was all about these intensity of every moment in that. But I just thought that was good. I think there are ways to present it. I've been watching most of the NFL this season through 10 minute highlights packages where they don't tell you the score. You watch them on YouTube and you can, you could go, that was a good game. Yeah. I saw the ebbs and flows of it. I got a, a gist of what happened on every drive. I didn't need to see the punts that weren't returned for more than two yards. Yeah. You know, or the ones that were fair catches, or the yeah, ones that were not fair catches. You know, so, so then, so, so I guess then the next bit of it. Then I read this other article. This is the Gemba analysis. So, like I said, the NRL has sixteen teams, and they're looking to see to be put in a seventeenth team, and like this one's one hundred and eight pages. So I read the executive summary and a few of the blurbs, but they were saying, look, I quoted like the number of fanatics, and then they give an asterisk. So a fanatic. Uh, so Jemba, who the guys consultants who did this paper, measures passion on a five-point scale, with those scoring four or five out of five classified as being fanatical about a particular sport. So it goes: the number of fanatics interested in a sport is directly linked to a rights holder's or broadcaster's revenue. With Jemba's data showing that fanatics drive eighty percent, more than eighty percent of revenues for major sports and leagues. And then it says the number of sport and entertainment passions Australians have today has increased by an average of 3.6 properties since 2011. Through the proliferation of digital technology like social media, the accessibility of global content and the increasing quality of sport and entertainment products, consumers are now allocating their finite disposable time across a greater number of passions. Sports that have pinnacle leagues in Australia, such as rugby league, cricket and Aussie rules football, have shown signs of declining passion amongst Australians. So basically, they're competing against the NBA, they're competing against Major League Baseball, they're competing against the NFL, they're competing against tennis, tennis, premiership. But tennis is like the second biggest sport in Australia. Oh, well. Behind Aussie, like neck and neck with cricket, behind the AFL, tennis. And you sort of go, geez, no one talks about tennis. But like it's, it's it's the third, it's the second biggest, joint second biggest. So that idea of the fanatics is... In order to grow your base, you have to be on free to air. In order to get the money in and to get a package, you have to be on satellite. Pay-per-view, yeah. Because you have to give them something to fill it, right? And you have to have one pay-per-view broadcaster, so you pay one subscription that you know you're going to get everything. Once you're into this stuff, 
then you want to watch it on your phone. You want to have you're going to watch it anyway, mm-hmm. but you want to have the highlights curated. Like you're going to watch your team's matches, but then you want to watch the other seven matches that are on in like seven minute blurbs. So you can you can watch everything in an hour, and you can watch all the good bits of the league's roundup in an hour by watching or over the course and, of Monday. And you know. do you know what? Like you will watch, mm. you will watch all of it because you're, you're like you're mad for it, right? And the Aussies. The NRL is only big in Australia and bigger in New Zealand, right? That like it's and it's a great game. Like it's it's deadly to watch. But it's 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 almost like a closed, like you the league isn't the game. Whereas for rugby, like the the peak of the rugby is is the World Cup. So if you've got a guy like McCafferty who had good ideas, but as I said, like, you know, had shite execution because he's a smug xenophobe, that if you go off with your league and you go to a different broadcaster and you go against the big draw in your game, which is the international game, like it's not going to work out well for you. It just mm. can't. You've put too many obstacles in the way. So what rugby has to do is grow the game. And What's maybe when I say grow the game, sorry, what rugby has to do is think coherently about how all the parts of the game fit together acknowledging that the international component of it is the most attractive so if you're cvc who are the guys who own rugby or who are the sort of the private money outside rugby um who have come in you look at it and you go it's miles more attractive a team in portugal in lisbon than a team that is just a shambles and a shit show of an organization in newport because nobody wants to go to newport they've had 20 years to be good and they're crap Mm. and Portugal are like of the moment, but like people love going to Lisbon. Yeah. It's in the same time zone. This isn't like, oh, Georgia should be in the Six Nations. You go like fucking Georgia, Russia's closer than like fucking Moscow's closer than Tbilisi. Maybe not strictly true. But even if you try to fly to Tbilisi, it's fucking nearly impossible. Like no one flies into Tbilisi. Not from not from yeah. the UK. Like it was maybe like three flights a week from Heathrow or something like that. There's no end of flights to Lisbon or to or to the Algarve. Right, so you're kind of going, but like this is this is what you have to do, and then it's it's then like how do you market your game? Like, what's your strategy for the game? How do you how do you make it that it is a viable professional league? Like how like how is it that a country where rugby is big, where they won the World Cup, where the, where like there is real wealth there in England, is struggling to maintain this professional league? And you have to go because they made an absolute hames of it. Yeah. It's because the league is fighting with the game, and you're going like that, that's not going to work for you, lads. Like you, you've you've got to wake up and just acknowledge that you've made an absolute mess out of this, and and see what works because there is a product there, but you've also got to make a decision that like it's you're not promoting the league, you're promoting your game, and it's like you're not promoting the Green Bay Packers, you're promoting the NFL. That's yeah. that's the key to it. You're, you're getting behind the shield. Yeah, <laughs> and, and I read. I read the first. I read the lead and the media Olympic after France lost the one that you brought home, and uh, it's written in that fucking media Olympic idiom. Like I have to, like it took me, took me an hour to read the lead article because that like I had to look up so many phrases, you know, in in the French dictionary. Like, you know the fact you up. just like look at the pictures and make up your own words. You know, <laughs> you know that's the way like Midi Olympique is it was written. A great, it was really good. It was, it, it was like, they have such good writers, you know, but it was just pouring out. Like he was, 
he there's one part which is just mentioning us to those who say it's only a game he just goes fuck you it's not <laughs> <laughs> it's real to me damn it you know but um he talks about uh in the in the like the second paragraph so like right at the head of the article he talks about the team which had so many um you know the the huge staff really well paid they had so many concessions from the club owners and uh, like the, their their most highly paid players were so often unavailable to them. Did the uh, this was this was the first sort of rugby world cup in which the uh, LNR were aligned with FFR, you know that they worked together. Did it hurt any of the French teams in a notable way? The club teams did it hurt the French league? No. Did their league is as strong as ever, if not stronger, now that their national team is. Like when you go hand in hand, both sides end up doing better out of it. Like the Irish side, the like you know, the Irish provinces are strong. Ireland is strong. The French clubs are strong. France are strong. It's when you're, it's when there's a misalignment, and it was made to look okay under Gatland and Wales. Although when Gatland started, the Ospreys were a strong team, um, and the recession really hurt Wales, but fundamentally when when a league is working with a union that's when you to put this in the most enormous inverted commas grow the game because like that to me that phrase doesn't mean anything it's too vague like do you want to grow the numbers playing the game do you want to grow the numbers watching the game or as most players i think they say the the loud part quiet grow my salary well, let's put it this way to wrap it up. It's like a garden. You need to tend the game and it will grow. Yeah. Wise words of wisdom. No, I think that is wise. Yeah, you have to look after the the disparate elements of the game if you're the union. And the league cannot be running against the union. It can't be, doesn't have to be in complete alignment. It doesn't have to be run like the RFU in the provinces. But it has to be run like ninety-five percent in the same direction. If it grows together, it goes together. 